Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. Welcome, welcome. We have another recording for you guys today. We're really trying to get into the groove of doing our solo episodes. So we hope that you enjoy your solo episodes, but there really is nothing like having a guest on. Don't get me wrong, Amanda. I love our solo episodes, but (laughs) we get some good guests on. We do. And it's so important because as much as like we've been in it, right, we've seen so many IEPs, You know, I've been in the classroom a little bit and we have so many different cases that we get to see so many different situations. We are not psychologists. We are not therapists. We are not certified teachers. We are not in those fields, taking those trainings in the classroom every day. So it is important for us as much as we can talk about the law and our experiences and what we're seeing and the trends, we need these experts to come on and really dive a little bit deeper. So we're so excited to have our guest today. Yeah, I thought you were just going to introduce her. We have Christine Reeve on. Christine, thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So Christine, tell us a little bit about your background and the work that you do at Autism Classroom Resources. Sure. I'm actually a family member of an older sister who, in retrospect, clearly would have qualified for autism had the autism diagnosis been the same now then as now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also come from a long line of teachers and I am, my background's in psychology and I'm a board certified behavior analyst at the doctoral level. My doctorate's in clinical psychology. And I've actually mm-hmm. spent most of my career working in special education, working, I've been extremely fortunate to work in a lot of different positions as a behavior specialist, as an administrator. I've done a lot of work working as a consultant, which gave me the opportunity to go into probably a thousand classrooms across the country, working alongside special educators in their classrooms, trying to figure out how to make a classroom work and really support the students that they were trying to serve. And given the sometimes the restrictions and the resources that they have and figuring out how to make it all fit together and how to make it work. And that has been a lot of what I do. And so now what I do actually is I do a lot of virtual training and Mm -hmm. I provide, I have a podcast where I talk about special education classrooms and supporting students in general ed and special ed with behavioral disorders, behavior issues, students with autism, students with intellectual disabilities, I have an online membership for special educators to provide support and resources and professional development for them. And I sell online resources and digital products for special education classrooms to support their students. You're like the type of person that we need on every IAP team, that person that can really look at the whole picture and provide any additional like support. Because I think Often we find on many IEP teams, everyone has blinders on and they're focused on their little thing. And it's not to say that they mean to do that, but teachers and therapists and psychologists have so many kids on their caseload 
that that's really all they can do, right? They're scheduled back-to-back sessions and then they get put in an IEP meeting and there's not really that time to, I mean, sure, we often put in IEPs time to collaborate, but is there really time to sit down and analyze and look at data and figure out what's the missing link or what's not working or what is working and kind of fitting the pieces together. So I kind of see you as that, like that glue kind of. The generalist. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that. I actually once wrote a social story for an IEP team because it became very clear that one of the things that is difficult about any IEP team is that everybody there has their perspective. I mean, and everybody Mm -hmm. should, you know, the family is there and they're worried about their kid. That's what Mm -hmm. they need to be worried Mm -hmm. about. You know, Mm -hmm. the principal is there and they're worried about their school. That's what Mm -hmm. they need to be worried about. The teacher in the general ed class is worried about her class. The teacher in the special ed room is worried about this kid and her class. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody's worried about their own little piece of it because that's what they see. And sometimes makes it hard to really kind of integrate the whole thing. And it's hard to remember that everybody has a different perspective than you too. And that that's. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. I love that you did a social story. I love that you did a social story for the team (laughs) (laughs) to like break it down. Yeah. To really kind of say it's okay that you disagree because Mm -hmm. that's what this is about. Now Mm -hmm. we have to find a way to have everybody come together, understanding everybody else's perspectives. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. I often find I have IEP teams that get really frustrated if conversations take a little bit longer, discussions take a little bit longer because, and it's often the parent or like us that are not necessarily challenging things, but are questioning things and requiring people to think outside of their already prepared. Okay. I have, I've written this present level. I've written this Mm -hmm. goal. And like, I'm going to talk about what I've written and, and I can't really like sit there and on the spot, think outside, but it's like, we kind of need the other people. I mean, if we're going to write an IEP that's clear for everybody and future IEP teams, which we know Mm -hmm. every year there's different people, right? We need someone else to say, wait, I'm hearing two different things here, or I'm not really sure what you mean by that term. Right. And I wish more teams wouldn't get frustrated at questions like that, because it's not like we're saying, oh, I don't think you're right. It's no, I want to make sure that I understand it. I want to make sure that parents understand it. I want to make sure that, you know, if you're an ed specialist and you're recommending something, does the general education understand, teacher understand what you're talking about? Like, we need everyone to understand. Christine, what's one thing that you wish like an IEP team would know about quote unquote challenging behavior? I think we've all heard the trope of, you know, behavior is a form of communication, but it often has such a negative connotation. Is there one thing that you wish, you know, either a district, a school, or just the entire IEP team or parents? Is there one thing that you wish that they kind of knew about behavior? That you I guess share. The, yeah, I guess the one thing, it's funny that you say the behaviors communication, because I have a podcast that I think is coming out sometime in the next couple of weeks, I lose track, that kind of talks about that, because I hear that all the time, and I'm mm-hmm. not really sure that all behavior is communication, but it definitely mm-hmm. does all have a function. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that I would say that maybe might take down some barriers around it is the idea that challenging behavior is nobody's fault. Mm. Um, and I think one of the things that I hear, and I hear it from parents a lot and parents that I just know in regular life is, you know, when the teacher comes and says, your kid did this, the automatic assumption is, what do you want me to do about it? Mm-hmm. And when the parent says to somebody, you know, my kid did this, 
or that kid did this, the automatic assumption that the teacher feels is, well, what do you want me to do about it? Mm. And I'm not always sure that either one of them is saying that that person is responsible for it, but our immediate interpretation is oftentimes you're saying that I'm supposed to fix this. And I think on both sides, we need to remember when we say it, that it isn't, you know, parents are not responsible for their child's behavior. They're not going to, you know, one of the things I always tell teachers is you're the experts, you know, we're the Mm -hmm. ones with the educational expertise. Mm -hmm. It's not fair to expect a parent to know what to do about a behavior, particularly if we're not sure what to do about a behavior. Why would we expect a parent to know about it? Right. And so I think that, but I think maybe if we just could all agree that it is a issue that lies in his or her skill deficits and mm-hmm. background and the other things that are a part of what's going on, it isn't anyone's fault. Mm-hmm. We have to figure out contextually what's going on in this kid's world to figure mm-hmm. out how to help them. And it's just right. something that we need to figure out. And the best way I think to figure that out is making sure that we're not just talking in generalizations. I think mm-hmm. a lot of times I go to IEP where someone is saying, well, we see this behavior all the time, or mm-hmm. we don't see that mm-hmm. behavior very often. Well, what is mm-hmm. all the time? What right. is not very often? And the only way you can get to that is by collecting good data and knowing yes. what to do with it. Absolutely. Right. I know we have a saying the fidelity of the data, right? And I think that oftentimes when we're talking about parent concerns at the top of an IEP meeting, it's like all of a sudden those concerns are moot because the team just all of a sudden is like trying to address them with the data that they have in front of them, but it's like not the real data that should have been collected, but they're just trying to, they're trying to like make it. Or data wasn't collected. And, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've been to an IEP meeting where we've been talking specifically about behavior and we've been talking about how, frequent a behavior is occurring or, you know, the duration of the behavior. And Mm -hmm. I asked a teacher to kind of talk about their experience and they might say something like, well, I see it all the time or Mm -hmm. I just don't really see it that often. And then when we ask for specific data to be taken on that specific behavior that we've defined and we've talked about what setting are we looking at the behavior, how that behavior data show something completely different than what the teacher said. And it's not to their fault, right? Our memory in general is going to go back to, you know, something that it kind of is pulled from our memory. So Mm -hmm. if we like something that was more notable, right? Like we're more likely to remember something if it was more notable, but we may not be thinking about every scenario. And especially if you're a teacher who has 30 kids in their class, you're not necessarily going to see every time a child does a behavior. So can you talk a little bit about kind of the best way for teens to approach, I guess, making better plans to take data and then like what to do with that data? Yeah, I'll try and give you the the short version. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I actually have a whole hour webinar on just that part of it. Because I think the one thing that you really want to do as a teacher, when you're thinking about data is to have a system of data. It's not just, you know, there can't, I wish there was one data that would do everything, but there isn't. I also don't think that there's a one size fits data system for everybody. Right. Everybody takes data a little bit differently because data has to fit into the fabric of the classroom and what else needs to be done. 
And people have different processing styles. I always talk about the fact that I have a very good friend and colleague who can take like three or four clickers and take data on frequency on four different behaviors at one time. If I do that, I'm great for about five minutes Mm -hmm. and then I'm clicking the behavior, the clicker for a wrong kid and then I can't fix it and I'm screwed Mm -hmm. up for the rest Mm -hmm. of the day. Uh I have to have post-it notes that I can erase and scratch out and, Mm -hmm. and do that. So different people process information in different ways. So different systems work for different people. But I think you have to look at all the data that you need to take and figure out what the need is. What kind of data do you need for what kind of situation? Because I think a lot of time people think that I need data on every single absolute occurrence of this situation or this behavior. Now, sometimes we do. Sometimes Mm -hmm. we need, you know, if we have a really dangerous, high intensive behavior that is something that we need to really get a handle on fast, we need a lot of data. We need the data almost every time it happens. But if we're talking about a behavior that is kind of chronic and isn't happening with, isn't really dangerous, that's happening on a regular basis, maybe we take a sample of that data. Maybe Mm -hmm. we only take data Mm -hmm. on it at a certain time on a consistent basis. And maybe we don't need to try to take data on everything, on all of it all day long, because then we can't take data on anything else or anything else either. Because the purpose isn't always, I need to know exactly how many times this behavior is happening throughout the day. It's why is this behavior happening? What is triggering this behavior? And what can help diffuse it after the fact, if it is, say, like an aggressive behavior or something like that? And I think that's the other part of it, right? Like we have to be looking at Exactly. Is your question trying to figure out why is this behavior happening? In which case we need to know not just how, you know, we need to know less about how often it's happening and more about when and where and in what Mm -hmm. situation and with whom and what else is going on. We need the more about the context in which it's occurring. Mm -hmm. Right. The frequency. And and I feel like that seems like so apparent. And like, I just had a client that, you know, they got an email, you know, oh, the child cried today. And that was it. And it was like, oh, why? How long? Like, what happened before? What happened after? Like, and that's just an inquisitive parent. You know, sometimes my parents will just be like, oh, okay, thanks. You know, and I mean, this mom is on top of it. I think she's just a curious person. And I think we as attorneys are just trained to get curious. Mm -hmm. But just even from that standpoint, I think that's exactly how you said. It's just like, we don't necessarily need to focus in. I feel like sometimes teams focus in on the wrong things, right? And then they're really harping on behavioral modification instead of really trying to, like you had said earlier, like sometimes behavior is a function, right? So if the child keeps getting out of their seat, they may be trying to seek, you know, some type of sensory input. So what can we provide to that child that would you know, fill that need and then be appropriate for the classroom. But I just, I think sometimes teams fall short of just stepping outside of whatever they think behavior is. (laughs) That's why I think your perspective is so unique because it seems like it should always be that way. But like, I have very few teams that see it your way. (laughs) Well, and I think it's hard because they're looking at it and it also depends on on your situation. I think when mm. we look at kids with more severe disabilities, 
you see yeah. a lot more of that understanding of, oh, this is a communication related problem. Mm-hmm. When you're looking at kids that are more in general ed, that are more verbal, you don't see that communication connection as clearly, but it doesn't mean it's not there. I work with a lot of high functioning kids with autism mm-hmm. who it's clearly a communication problem, but nobody recognizes it mm. because they talk. Mm, right. And they don't get that he is quote unquote threatening other kids because it's getting the other kids to leave him alone. Right. And right. learned that by saying these outrageous things, people clear out really fast, but it's also getting him sent to the principal's office and suspended from right. school. Right. Um, we just get the assumption of, well, he's just a bad kid. He doesn't right. need to be disciplined mm-hmm. because right. oftentimes like that's he's got an IQ 150. How come he doesn't know better? Well, because mm-hmm. he has a social exactly. disability that is right. impacting this situation. And that's where this behavior is paying off. And, you know, as they, those, I see it even with kids with emotional and behavior disabilities, there's a mm-hmm. language there too that people don't always recognize. Mm -hmm. And so I think for those more apparently capable kids, it's not as apparent as it is for our students who are, have intellectual disability, who have that more visible handicap. People recognize it more. Mm -hmm. So I think what you're seeing is in those general ed classrooms, people are more likely to respond to a behavior as a, well, we got we got to reinforce it, or we've got to punish it. We've got to address the behavior instead of what do I need to put in place so this kid can be successful? Right, figuring out the why. Why, why is, why is this happening? Right. The first question: It's how right. can I reinforce or punish to make this behavior go away? Right. And we said it on the pod many times. We always talk about how like there's no such thing as like a lazy like first or second yeah. grader, right? They typically, if they're not doing their work, there's a reason for it. And I think the same kind of goes for behavior. We're not necessarily seeing young kids who are being like quote unquote what some people would say bad. They're not doing that on purpose, just like I'm gonna be bad today. No, mm-hmm. there's always mm-hmm. a route to it mm-hmm. for kids. And I would say for adults, most of the time, too, there's something going on. Well, you know, what's funny is we love character development in shows, right? And so you Mm -hmm. have this client or this client, you have that you're watching this show and you're like, oh, my God, she's such a bad person. And then it's like they go into her background and it's like this happened to her. Like, I think the Disney Maleficent, right? Like, you know, everybody Mm -hmm. loves like what happened to you? Right. And that I, way. Yeah. But then we stop short with a disability. Cause we're like, well, they have a disability. Well, it's right. just like that. And it's just like, no, let's get curious about it. One thing that I wanted to touch base on, cause I think you, you almost touched base on it as well is the impact of the hidden curriculum for students mm-hmm. with ASD. Can you talk about, you know, what you yeah. believe that quote unquote hidden curriculum is for kiddos with autism? Yeah. The hidden curriculum is everything that most of us learned, but nobody really mm-hmm. taught us directly. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that there are a lot of things that we internalize as we go through life about how to behave in certain situations. Mm-hmm. And if we don't pick it up from watching the people around us, we'll go ask our best friend. Like I'm going mm-hmm. to a, a wedding that's all black and white dress and I've never been to one before. And mm-hmm. so it's like, tell me what I'm supposed to wear. I don't mm-hmm. know what this is. Whereas for a lot of our individuals on the autism spectrum, 
they're missing that. So they don't, yeah. you know, they don't understand that when they get pulled over by the police and he says, well, do you know how fast you were going? And you say, I was going 88 miles an hour. And he says, well, I clocked it going 80. No, sir. I was going 88 miles. It's like, right. Argue with the policeman, especially right. When right. going slower than you thought you were. Um, <laughs> they don't like that. That's something that we all kind of knew, but you know, we didn't ever really think to, teach a student that right um you know telling someone that they look like they cut their own hair isn't really a compliment you know you can kind of see how the words oh you look like you cut your own hair like oh that's a good thing (laughs) really yeah yeah Um, you know and so you know there are a lot of things that happen out there like I curse in front of my friends, but not in front of my mom or the principal. And so things that we've picked up, and those are the things that often get our students in trouble, and they can often end up with our students with autism in jail. I mean, I've worked with a student who thinks that the way to find out if a friend who happens to be, he's a boy, happens to be a girl, to find out if she's home isn't to go to her house and ring the doorbell, it's to go to her bedroom Mm -hmm. window and look in the house. Right. Right. Her family knows him and the neighborhood knows him and doesn't call the police on him. But if he were to do that in any other neighborhood or situation, it's going to be a problem. And so it's something we have to explicitly teach him not to do. And I think that's a really important lesson for general education teachers, because, you know, as we're constantly reminded, general education teachers don't have a focus in special education. And some general education teachers can have so many kids in their classroom over the years with IEPs that they they get to know a lot. But we have to remember that they can sometimes need more information in the same way that a parent would, right, getting a new diagnosis or even later down the line, right? So I think it's always important to try to get those resources to the teachers, to the families. And I know you have a wonderful set of resources on your website and your podcast, your blog. And I know that teachers can get, you know, curriculum supports and everything for you. So how is the best way for them to get a hold of you, to ask questions, get your materials? You can find all the center of things for me at autismclassroomresources.com. You can usually find me on Facebook at Autism Classroom News or on Instagram at Autism Classroom Resources. I hope that will be up by the beginning of May, but if it's not, I hope to be back soon. Facebook, I got hacked, so it's a little crazy, but... Uh, That's the worst. We'll we'll include all the information in our show notes. And hopefully by the time our listeners listen to this and everything's up and they can go and connect with you. And we hope that this provided just a little insight into how we can better work for these kids. And hopefully teachers, you know, you go check out her resources. I know that everything I've looked at already, like I want to print out some of your information and hand it to IEP teams. Yeah, definitely come to autismclassroomresources.com and you can actually click on the free resources up at the top right corner and join the newsletter and that'll get you into the free resource library. And there's free webinars, there's free printables there that are great for both teachers and for parents as well. And parents are welcome as well. Doing God's work, Christine. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. And I hope you guys check her out. And Amanda and I will be back next week to fill your ears with more goodness. (laughs) Have a good rest of your week. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.